Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. When I think of past influential leaders on the left, names like Rosa Luxemburg, W.E. Du Bois, and Paul Robinson come to mind. And now we have a new generation of social activists like Kimberly Crenshaw, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Robin DiAngelo. One group of leaders were imaginative thinkers, defenders of the working class with unimpeachable political integrity. The other group is void of intellectual substance, fixated on identity politics, and more comfortable in a Martha Vineyard's wine and cheese gala than a union picket line. Our guest today has some observations on this topic. Let's discuss. Well, warm greetings. We are excited to have uh, Norman Finkelstein on our podcast today, who is a very prominent political uh, scientist known for his writings about the Middle East. And uh, his new book is a bit of a departure from this. And it is, um, I'll burn that bridge when I get to it. Heretical Thoughts on Identity Politics, Cancel Culture, and Academic Freedom. Uh, Dr. Finkelstein, I, I'm not just saying this to uh, flatter you, but this was really the best book I've read this year, by, by far, it, in synthesizing your uh, understanding of what's going on with left politics. I think we're all always morphing back and forth on what that means. But you uh, did an extraordinary job in pulling this all together and making sense of it. Well, thank you. I got an email. No, somebody reviewed the book and called the cover hideous. <laughs> Which, in a way, it was supposed to be hideous because it was supposed to... Um, signal to the reader that this is not going to be another dry <laughs> academic tome, that there is a, a humor to it, there's mockery, um, because this whole world culture is so completely insane and so contemptible that I didn't want a serious cover because the topics I'm talking about, they have obviously a serious content but woke culture itself is just, to quote that reviewer of my book, it's just hideous. <laughs> so it merited a hideous cover. Well, I, I'm celebrating that with uh, my my virtual background is Seinfeld <laughs> Department in uh, New York. So that'll that'll maybe maybe that'll help a little bit. Yeah, it's fun. It's funny. It, it's it's a very funny book, and uh, it's. Um, you know, any anyway, I I re, it really helped me realize that I'm not crazy. I'm not the only one. That the politics of what we're dealing with now is is a little bit off plumb and needs needs some correction. So, if I were to summarize one aspect of the book, basically, there are two lefts nowadays. The lack of a better term, I would say there's the real left and the counterfeit left. The real left has a long tradition, and most people, at least in my generation, they situate themselves somewhere in that tradition, which was called the tradition of socialism and uh, anarchism. Even anarchism wasn't really distinct. It wasn't a distinct trajectory from socialism. I remember my old mentor, who I could somehow count as a friend, Paul Sweezy, uh, the great Marxist economist. He once commented, let's face it, uh, there's not much difference between more anarchism and socialism. Uh, as to the goal, the difference is the means. And so there is that long tradition and virtually any person who called himself a leftist back then uh, situated themselves within that socialist, communist, uh, 
anarchist, anarcho-syndicalist tradition. Somewhere they locate themselves in that tradition. And the most recent manifestation of that tradition was, of course, the Bernie Sanders candidacy. He himself calls himself a democratic socialist. He did it in the interests of trying to <clears throat> become quote-unquote popular. He didn't repudiate that title. And um, the kinds of demands he put forth, the rhetoric he used throughout the campaign, it was clearly within that broad tradition, as I said, that dates back to the middle of the 19th century. <clears throat> and then there's this newfangled thing called identity politics, which, as it happens, had a role in the history of the socialist movement, communist movement, <clears throat> namely the socialist communist movement, <clears throat> excuse me, always recognized that there were certain what they called questions, the woman question, the Negro question, the um, Jewish question, Jewish question, and then more broadly, the national question, that these questions were not easily reducible to what was called the social or the class question. Obviously, if you were a socialist, a communist, an anarcho-syndicalist, the key issue was the class question, the social question. But then there were these other, you can call them ancillary questions, and their exact relationship to the class question and the, the exact relationship to the objective, namely socialism or communism, was never, was never easily theorized. Now, what woke politics is, it's the old questions, Negro, Jewish, woman, national. Nowadays, obviously, they would have added on the gay lesbian question. That would be, it falls roughly in the same <clears throat> category as the historical questions. But what woke politics does is, it plucks the identity questions and lops off the class question. The class question, if you read the literature on this, uh, by these woke quote unquote theorists, they have lopped off the class question, except for a couple of throwaway phrases about capitalism, and they have elevated to the first place the identity question, and their only concern with class is very simple. They want equal representation for all the identities in the ruling class. That's their objective, to make sure that each and every one of the infinite regression of quote-unquote identities will have a seat or a placemat at the master's table. That's it. <clears throat> and that's not, listen, anybody can call themselves a leftist, anybody can call themselves a radical, fine by me, I can't, I'm not going to uh, withhold that epithet from you, but the left as a historical project, it always put class first. It didn't ignore the other aspects of uh, what you can call radical politics, but class was first. Identity politics lopped off class. And the, the, the spokespersons, the proponents, the high priests and priestesses of woke politics, they're making a killing financially. I mean, these are very rich people getting huge sums of money in compensation from the Democratic Party um, and its affiliates. It's a moneymaker. And anybody who wants to pretend that's not an aspect of it, so far as I'm concerned, is denying something that's staring in your face. 
the millions, the tens of millions, the hundreds of millions of dollars distributed by Jack Dorsey, the former CEO of Twitter, Jeff Bezos, um, the, the sums they get, I mean, to me, it's simply, I can't even comprehend it, where these woke high priests and priestesses charge $20,000 an hour on Zoom to other the most imbecilic, moronic, vacuous platitudes. What is that? That's the left? No, uh, it's a business. They're entrepreneurs. You know, I, I heard an interview with you um, and Paul Jay, and he was talking about your seminal first book uh, where you took a part Joan Peterson's um, book from Time Immemorial, and you described how you literally pre-computer just went through all of the data meticulously and realized that there were errors in the book and it was a, a problem and it made a lot of difference. You took this same focus with these books. You sat down and read every one of these books, so so we don't have to, although I've read half of them, and literally went through argument by argument, footnote by footnote, and so it's it's not just is it's not just sitting back and taking pot shots. It's really doing a good analysis of where their logic is wrong, where their ideas are wrong, um, and very very well done. I do what I, I did what I do best. I don't claim to be an expert in African American history. It's a very rich field from the days when I studied it as an undergraduate. I occasionally pick up a book here or there, but certainly it's a serious academic discipline. I've not skimmed the, even skimmed the surface of the scholarship. And there are many other questions where I don't claim any expertise, but I have a certain confidence for working through an argument, seeing if it's logical, seeing if the evidence supports it, or whether it's just chicanery. And that's what I did. I sat down with these books, so-called, and I tried to parse the reasoning, the evidence, the logic, and you can't but reach the conclusion that this is, from an intellectual <clears throat> point of view, a farce. Um, so in one sense, my goals were quite modest. In the other, but on the other hand, I saw my book as a kind of tech, a go-to anti-textbook that a lot of people hear about these books, the white fragility, the um, stamp from the beginning, how to be an anti-racist. They hear about the books, but there really is a poverty of critical literature because critics mock the books, mock the authors, but I, I haven't yet come across a single individual who candidly said to me, I read Stamped from the beginning, or I read How to Be an Anti-Racist. There, there are a reasonable number who read that Robin DiAngelo's um, uh, White Fragility, but uh, there aren't many who have, have the patience, which I do, to simply go through a book line by line, um, juxtaposing different pages, separated by a large number of pages, juxtaposing a page four and a page 40, and a page 400, juxtaposing the three, and trying to see, is there anything there? And the, my conclusion was, there's nothing there. It's complete garbage. Thoughts, Greg? Yeah, I... I uh... I'm a great admirer. I, uh, Michael Parenti is one of my uh, heroes, and you're becoming one of my heroes. And I associate the distance from academia, the forced distance from academia, 
as a good thing, a good indicator of just how interesting and just how uh, fearless and uh, and opposed to hypocrisy people are. So Parenti, like you, uh, that's that's his major fight. As a consequence, he gets no major, he got no major uh, appointments at universities, uh, got no acclaim, was pushed off the media and so forth. But I think uh, a class analysis of how we got here is 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 important as well because I think the the reshaping after the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement in the '60s of U.S. politics really pushed us forward. So I think that uh, the accommodation with the civil rights movement that created a substantial black middle class and the Democratic Party's loss of the Southern vote, they gave it, they let it go, and Republicans picked it up. And the new constitution, the new coalition of the Democratic Party was essentially uh, uh, suburbanites, middle class suburbanites. And and this, this these notions of anti-racism, these notions of uh, pro-feminism, of pro-gay rights, fit perfectly with that Democratic Party uh, new coalition. That's who feeds it from a class perspective, in my view. And I say that because that's essentially I, I don't I don't identify with left. I don't I don't see two lefts. There's still the left that you relate to, Norman, and I relate to, and this is a whole different phenomenon. Has nothing really to do with the left uh, anymore. The classic traditional left saw oppression of women, of blacks, and others as a feature of capitalism, as a wedge used in the working class to break the working class unity. But this has nothing to do with that. It has absolutely nothing to do with that. It's it's a uh, manufactured kind of version. Um, of the etiquette, it's essentially a, a notion of etiquette that etiquette that fits perfectly with the uh, the suburban middle class white uh, voter, and that's what it, what keeps it alive is that fits with the Democratic Party agenda, and it's the new coalition of Democratic Party. You have any thoughts on that? That's that's just my view. Um, I guess I would put things. I I think it's useful to clarify points of disagreement rather than just agreeing with each other. I think the biggest change in the um, Democratic Party and in current politics is uh, you guys go back far enough to remember that there was a time when the trade unions were a real force to reckon with in American life. That when you talked about the United Steelworkers, the United Mine Workers, the United Auto Workers, I mean, these were powerful unions with very large memberships, which had a real influence on the political state, on the political scene. Um, and even the anti-communist unions, <laughs> I'm from New York, and one of the unions was led, the transport workers union was led by this fellow, Mike Quill. Now, Mike Quill was one of those ex-communists who became a raging, rabid anti-communist. But Mike Quill was a force to reckon with. He used to take his workers out on strike on New Year's Eve. And there would always be a to-do when Quill threatened to strike we had the Taylor Law back then, which made it illegal for public workers, of which transport workers are one, to strike. That didn't deter Mike Quill. And that was um, the base, the foundation, the core of the Democratic Party. Now, of course, there were people in uh, leadership, most notably and memorably, uh, Amini, George Meany, who were rabid anti-communists and uh, positively unpleasant people. But then we had, they weren't great, they weren't terrible. There were the Walter Ruthers, the Leonard Woodcocks. Uh, they, you know, have a mixed record. Let's just put it that way. When you go back as I did in preparation for the book, I uh, 
listen to the 1984 Democratic National Party convention. And that's when Mario Cuomo made that famous speech in praise of the working class and mocking the Republican Party as the party of the leisure class. Um, I don't know if you guys recall that, but that was a pretty vivid moment. And then you compare it, as I did in the book, with the 2016 and 2020 Democratic Party uh, conventions. You know, there was barely a mention of workers. I mean, literally, I'm not, that's not like hyperbole. There was barely a mention of workers. And so the other point to make is in that classical era, when the Democratic Party's base was the trade union movement, that's, that's not to say there wasn't also an identity politics base. Minorities, beginning with FDR, minorities uh, gravitated to the Democratic Party. It was seen as a safe haven because it was the party of immigrants. And so even though Jews eventually became very rich, they completely made it in the United States, they never transitioned to the Republican Party because there was a feeling that so long as you're Jewish, however much money you might have accumulated, there's always the danger always lurks of a nativism, which was associated with the Republican Party. So even Jews, but minorities in general, in particular, obviously African-Americans, they, they gravitated to the Democratic Party. What happened now is, there's this massive shift. The trade union movement, its salience in the Democratic Party has been radically reduced and the identity politics aspect of the Democratic Party has been radically increased. Its salience has been radically uh, increased. And so, um, you could see that, for example, in Joe Biden. Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders were the only two candidates in the last election who were making some kind of appeal to the working class. Obviously, Bernie, that was his total appeal. The identity politics was very marginal because he understood once you start leaning on the identity politics, there are going to be ruptures in support among the white working class. So he radically downplayed the identity politics. What he said was, if you are, an, he didn't use these words, but essentially I'm paraphrasing, his essential message was, if you are an oppressed minority, then you will benefit most from my revolution. The working class, the proverbial now, 99%, they'll all benefit. But if you are really the most down and out, like African-Americans in the so-called inner city, you would be the main beneficiaries of my program. And Biden, even though he's gone completely woke in trying to get that identity politics vote, he too, as you know, especially you could see it in his last State of the Union address, he's still trying to win over at least a portion of the white working class. There are others like Elizabeth Warren, uh, Booker, um, and all the other candidates, Buttigieg, obviously, they gave up completely on the working class. It's as if it weren't even a part of the party. Uh, so that's how I see what's sometimes called the realignment in the Democratic Party. Yes, yeah, so once the white suburban vote, because it's rich, they got money and they tend to be liberal. So you um, make the right appeals, which include the identity politics, but that, that's because it warms the cockles of the heart of liberals as if they're doing something 
enlightened and radical, but of course with no price. They don't pay any price. What, what price is there uh, that these folk, are they asked to redistribute re, uh, their wealth? No, they're not. Are they asked to make personal sacrifices of any kind? No, they're not. They just get to, you know, as the expression has, it's a good expression, I think, they just get the virtue signal. Right. They get to show. Well, that's that, you know, that's uh, the political economy of it. That that's you you put you put, hit the nail on the head. That's the political economy of it. It's an etiquette that they can they can accept. I totally agree with that word, and I'm going to use it in the future. It's a politics and, uh, etiquette. I think that's absolutely correct, and it's a and, very good. I don't know if you coined that phrase. But that's a, or that I term. Did. I like it. I'll claim it. Well, <laughs> you happen to credit though. That, that happens. Get a copyright be, on it, Greg. That happens to be an excellent. Uh, I'll give it to you, Norman. Sure. Uh, an excellent uh, nomenclature, and I'm going to use it because I think that's exactly what it is. I well, wrote I, a piece I, on Robin, uh, Robin uh, D'Angelo, and that's where I I use that term effusively uh, because it seems to capture what she's about is etiquette really teaching white suburbanites the etiquette of race. And, and you're right, it comes at absolutely no cost. You can be an anti-racist and do not a damn thing for people <laughs> who are jobless, people who uh, uh, don't have medical care, people that have bad housing. You It doesn't cost you anything to be an anti-racist based on, on what you just said. The only thing it costs you is you have to be prepared to pay their fees. <laughs> well, it's absolutely true. I mean, Robin D'Angelo, for a complete airhead, she's a very rich woman. And Ibrahim X. Kendi, for a complete imbecile, he's a very rich man. No, well, it's true. I mean, they charge now $200 a minute. $200 a minute. Well, let, let me ask you a provocative question. Uh, I, I, I agree. Everything so far, I agree. But then the question still lurks. What about the people that have no housing that are black? What about the people that have no uh, bad schools that are black? Where does that fit into the picture? Because as you mentioned, Bernie didn't make that a special deal. That wasn't a special thing of his campaign. And yeah, they would benefit in general from changes. But should we just not even talk about that? I mean, that's no, I think, one of the dangers. I think what he tried to do was create a program that would unite everybody, but would also not be indifferent to the special uh, situations of those who are worst off. So he would never, whatever, let's say, for example, on legalizing marijuana, he said those who had to serve time under the drug laws should be the first ones to get to sell the marijuana you know, to vend it legally. And if you look carefully as, at the platform and the planks in this platform, on every issue, let's say, on the issue of rebuilding infrastructure, he said the inner city should come first in rebuilding infrastructure. So I, th I think he did what a good person of the left should do, which is to say, keep the coalition together, uh, based on common class interest, but also given the historical uh, distinctions of certain groups suffering, that you should be able to also uh, compensate or, or remediate in special ways. And I think that's, I think most white workers would accept that. Most white working people will say, okay, I get it, racism, and I get it, slavery. So if we're all going to get something, yes, those who were shafted historically, uh, maybe they should get so, a little more. I, I think most white, you know, most white people would accept that. What they won't accept is uh, putting them in the basket of deplorables right. uh, and tell them that they're all rednecks, they're all uh, backward, they're all. Uh, um, stupid. That part they won't accept. And guess what? I'm with them. Right. I'm with them. I quoted Bernie Sanders in the book as saying, "Yes, there is a problem among liberal elites that they think they're so much better." 
you know? So you know, going back to 19 uh, to 2016, two, two miles north of here is a, or a, is a middle school and they, we have caucuses. And I remember going to the caucus with Bernie and you couldn't get parking. It was just, it was a phenomenon like I'd never seen before. He filled the Tacoma Dome on a couple of days' notice, well, literally filled it. And there is no question in my mind that the Bernie Sanders campaign marked a milestone in the history of, of the American left. Right. No question about that. And I will, to the last, argue with anyone who says he was a fraud, he was a fake, we were duped, we were deceived. No, it's not true. Uh, and for the very reason that you just described, the fact that he was able to bring out masses of people on a class program, which had not happened in the United States since the 1930s, nearly a century had passed before a phenomenon like that appeared on the American uh, political stage. So I have no problem uh, defending that record and defending his achievement. However, we have to be clear because we have to learn from the past. We can't just praise our role or praise in general the past. We have to learn from it. There were real limits to the Bernie Sanders candidacy. The Bernie Sanders candidacy started as two prongs. One was what was a primary election campaign and the other was what he called the revolution. The primary campaign came to an end when he conceded defeat and endorsed Joe Biden. Even if he had done that, the second prong of his campaign, his announced campaign, the revolution didn't have to die. He could have endorsed Biden, but also said, if they're going to get anything through Congress, we need people in the street. It's impossible for a handful of people called the squad to get anything through that's substantive and meaningful, unless those very same tens of thousands of people who showed up at his rallies, unless they coalesced, went to Washington, or in their uh, neighborhoods simultaneously committed mass civil disobedience, uh, pressured their representatives around a series of demands. In the absence of what he called the revolution, plainly nothing was going to happen. So Bernie was at a crossroads when Biden was elected. He had two choices. Choice number one was keep the revolution alive and call out the masses of people to demonstrate, to commit civil disobedience, until we get this program through, or at least a couple of prongs of the program through. The second choice was Bernie was going to be the left voice in Biden's ear. He was going to whisper to him, Joe, you promised to do this. Joe, you promised to do that. Don't let us down. Don't let down the people. Don't let down my constituents. Bernie chose the second. He knew that if he persisted with the revolution, that Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, they would discard him. He's not going to get near power. He's going to be back to the gadfly senator from Vermont. He won't have the ears of power. And so he decided to be the voice of the left inside the 
inner sanctums of the Democratic Party. And of course, nothing really meaningful came of the whole Bernie phenomenon. There was a possibility he, I have to say, I don't want to use the strong word, betrayed it. I would say, let's call it, he didn't follow through on it. Right. You're being Great. kind, I think. You're being kind to Bernie. Uh, look, Bernie is Bernie. You know, um, yeah. a lot of people said at the time, and it was true, a lot of people said at the time, Bernie grew the movement, but the movement also grew Bernie. He became a real historical figure because of the movement. And once the movement evaporated in no small part because of him, he became the old Bernie again, the gadfly in the Senate. I was listening the other day to a discussion between two black neoconservatives, uh, John Warter and Glenn Lowry, talking about this new biography of Martin Luther King. It was actually an interesting discussion because McWarter made the point, when you read the new biography, you can't quite figure out how did King, a pretty ordinary, undistinguished individual, how did he become that historical figure who one cannot but be uh, tremendously inspired by? How did that happen? Because they say, you read his biography, he wasn't a great student. He was from a middle-class, what's called back then, you know, black bourgeoisie background. He would probably have end, uh, been an ordinary pastor in a small church as he was at the time. How did he? Be, how did that king become the new king? And it's sort of the same thing with Bernie. How did Bernie? Yeah, Bernie seemed like a nice guy, and he, you know, he had his political convictions at a young age. Uh, but how did he become the Bernie who went on national television and was calling out the corrupt big pharma, the corrupt one percent, our corrupt system, and really, you know, shaking? For a moment, the foundations of our country, you know. Yeah, I, I think I have a question. I mean, a, a answer for you. I'm a third of way through the King book. Uh huh. And um, very, very good. With you know, a huge amount of uh, data has been dumped to get new information. But what one of the things that you said in your book was you had a statement saying, "I I don't know why people say I'm proud to be black. I don't know why people are saying I'm proud to be gay. I mean." Don't take pride in those things. Take pride in what you do. And to a certain extent, King was was doing that too. He wanted to change it from a black movement to a people's movement. He wanted to talk about class. He wanted to talk about the inequity that is being created, not well, just yeah. as a champion for for black that, people, but as a champion yeah. for all people. So yeah, you're, ask you're, yourself why? Yeah. Why is that? I think I agree with you. He had a measure of independence. He had a measure of independence that allowed him to do that, and he grew. Bernie surrendered his independence when he got involved deeply in Democratic Party politics, and that's that's a place you go. Ideas go to die, and uh, that takes nothing away from Bernie's character or how he got where he got. But King never got in Democratic Party politics, and he continued to grow, and he did go towards class politics. But you can you can explain that, whereas it's not a, a mystery. It's explainable. He, well, he's exposed. It is, it is and it isn't because uh, King came from a very conventional African American milieu, and so how 
he managed to grow out and beyond that milieu. It is a kind of perplexity, I would have to say. Uh, and it's, it's, it's very impressive. I mean, King at the end of his life, you know, he was 39 years old. He decided to organize the Poor People's March with the emphasis on poor when everybody around him, Andrew Young, Whitney Young, all of them were ready to cash in on the gains that were made in the civil rights movement. And they did, you know, Andrew Young, for example, he became a really corrupt sack of shit, disgusting human being, really disgusting human being. I don't know if you remember, but I remember as if it were yesterday when there were complaints about using slave labor in Vietnam. Nike was using slave labor in Vietnam. They asked Andrew Young to go to Vietnam. He went, he stayed there 24 hours and he came back and he says, it's all wonderful there. Don't believe a word you say. That's what Andrew Young turned into. Yeah, and um, and um, King, King, where did he end up? He didn't try to cash in. He went with the Poor People's March, last day of his life. He was organizing the sanitation workers in Memphis or speaking on their behalf. And then he delivered that incomparable eulogy it was as if he were speaking at his own funeral the night before he was killed. It's a really, it's a mesmerizing story, King. And I'm just curious, I have to get off in a moment. No, I still have 15 minutes. Um, I'm curious, what do you think of that King biography? Is it good? Phenomenal. It's it. First of all, things such as the relationship between he and Malcolm X, they were actually friends. And they the the split was driven between them by the media and by the, um, you know, when you actually read their correspondence, read their letters. He said, I could I, I have a lot to learn from Malcolm X. Uh, the the Riverside speech at the end completely put uh, Johnson over the over the over the edge um, when he came out against that against that. And. He and Hoover would sit and listen to tapes and and you know would actively plot how they could can destroy him and they did that as effectively as they they could by by a lot of means you know planting stories and the other thing that I didn't really know about King is he suffered from psychiatric issues I mean he tried to suicide twice as a youth he had depression. Uh, when he won the Nobel Peace Prize, he would have been hospitalized before that for uh, clinical depression. So uh, I did he, not know any of that. that uh, he, he he struggled. He was uh, he he struggled with some some demons. But it is quite remarkable how when you read what he was saying, how prescient it is, how correct it is, uh, and he's been reduced to just this character with the ML King Day. You know, they don't talk about his his class class organization and and um how w e. Du Bois was a hero as his just like you uh and Paul Robinson and he he embraced all those people and he refused to throw that area of the communist uh, um group that were organizing the uh, blacks at that time they were they were welcome in the communist party uh he refused to throw them under the bus that's not true. That's let's let me correct that. That's not true. Uh, I I wanted to point out the communist influence, and that, that's what explains a lot of the trajectory. Of, uh, from from when he went in, you know, very beginnings, he was engaged with communists in the south. His chief advisor was a young uh, uh, longshoreman from Levison. Pardon me. His Who? chief advisor was Levinson. Levinson. Well, Levinson. Levinson was the money man, and he was a communist. But there was a young black uh, longshoreman from New Orleans, who's uh, I don't have your memory. I wish I did, Norman. Yeah, I know but, who uh, you mean. He, died he was the guy that from. he was the he was the guy that King threw under the bus in a kind way because he depended so much on him. He's a member of the Communist Party. Yes, Robert yes. Kennedy went to them. 
and said, you've got to get rid of this guy. Yeah, I, I can't remember now. his name now. He then, you know, he was the You're one getting who old handled, too. He he was the one who handled Chelsea Jackson's Rainbow Coalition. And, it was and the don't same forget, guy. right, right, and don't forget. Yeah, he was he was a big time thinker, a really deep thinker. He was an organizer. And, and don't forget, yes. don't forget Freedomways. Don't forget the Freedomways banquet, which I'll bet you that biography doesn't cover. That's where we talked about Pablo Picasso, uh, Pablo Neruda, and communist and W. Du Bois. And he said, they're communists. And, and that was his anti-communism lecture. And so that was always a part of that struggle. He wasn't a, a limp middle-class liberal. It was more to it than that. And I think that explains a lot of that trajectory that we're puzzling over. Now you got me, we're trying to remember what's the name of that guy yeah, who, yeah. who Kennedy got rid of. Uh, I'm embarrassed, I, I'm embarrassed I can't remember. Yeah, but he then became the lead, the uh, organ chief organizer for the Rainbow Coalition, but his name just mm -hmm. slips my mind. In any case, yeah. in the biography, is Paul Robeson mentioned? Uh, I haven't read the whole thing, but Paul Robeson is, um, he, he definitely talks a lot about W.E. Du Bois. Yeah, and... Du Bois I know, but, you know, Robeson was not invited to the March on Washington. Well, he was he was thrown he was thrown under the bus, but that I'm not so sure that was by King as much as it was everybody. He was he was crushed by all by Norman, forces Norman, that I, were. What? Go Norman, ahead. I got to tell you this before I know you have to get off, but I want to make sure I tell you this before you get off. I watched the Glenn Laurie interview with you, and I don't watch podcasts, but I watched almost the entire thing. But I must say, when you talked about Robeson and Robeson going to Spain. And singing before the uh, the, the Welsh uh, miners and so forth, uh, and they were Lori was good enough to put these visuals up in the uh, in the interview. That was extremely moving. Extremely. You know moving. what? Listen to what I say. That was the the part of the interview that I liked the most. That I got to present to a new generation for those who watch it the life of Robeson, the sacrifices he made. And I made my tiny little contribution to him, not me, to him being remembered. And in that interview, they also posted a picture of Rosa Luxemburg. Yes. And I can assure you that's the first and the last time you'll see Rosa Luxemburg's picture in a Glenn Lowry podcast. I was very happy about that. I felt in my tiny little way, I enabled Robeson's memory and his legacy to live on. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Yes, it was when I actually watched it and I saw they found the pictures, uh, I was very, very pleased. You know, comparing Compass, uh, Red Rosa with, uh, you know, I, this is a confession. Raise your hand if you had Angela Davis's poster in your in your. Uh, I did. I gave out Angela did Davis. You? Christmas. All th all three of us had Angela yeah, Davis's poster I, in their dorm room. I gave up. I gave out Angela Davis Christmas cards in 1970. All my friends thought I was completely crazy. And, and what I, a, what a what a you you. Did what did you say, Greg? You did security for her? Or? I did security for her in Pittsburgh. I had breakfast with her. You know, she was. I, mean, I was awestruck by her. I mean, absolutely awestruck. And well, uh, she I was, was involved impressive. in the National Alliance. Pardon she me? was impressive. She. Yeah, was, um, she's brilliant. She, very bright. Good philosophy. Very bright woman, and she had a lot of raw physical courage. No question in my mind about it. I'm uh, sorry how she ended up. She became a mascot for woke politics. Yeah. yeah. It's a very you, sad thing what happened. You can have breakfast with her now, Greg. You just have to pay a couple thousand dollars to get on uh, Martha's Vineyard. Not a couple of thousand. She charges between thirty-five and fifty thousand dollars. Oh my god. Whoa. Whoa. Oh, yeah. Well, there you go. That's that's uh I that's, and I think that that sums things up called, pretty well. She uh was invited by a friend of mine at Harvard to speak on the issue of black black and Palestinian uh, unity, their common problems and so forth. She said she'll come for $35,000. Oh, God. My friend said solidarity forever.
<laughs> Unreal. How's your book doing? How, how's it? How's it going? Look, it's an uphill battle. First of all, it's a book. It was pitched to the younger generation, you know. So first of all, the younger generation doesn't read anything longer than a tweet. So that that already was a problem. Uh, and uh, secondly, uh, a, a large parts of the book rub a lot of people the wrong way. So uh, in a word, look, I conceived the book, as I said, as a kind of anti-textbook. That when people hear about woke politics and they hear about Ibram X. Kendi and they hear about this and that, some people say, hey, uh, you should check out what Finkelstein had to write. And so now they'll have like a, a little encyclopedia where they can go over, a one volume encyclopedia, where they can go over and, you know, from my point of view, they'll get the lowdown, the truth about these hucksters and uh, fakers, uh, these soothsayers. Uh, so in that respect, the book will be out there and people can refer to it. Uh, is it a big seller? No. Has the sales been disappointing? Yes. Am I shocked? No. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with us. Um, well, I'm glad you told me about I was not going to get the King biography, but now on your recommendation, I'll go and read I'll it. I'll tell you another one, too, is is this book, Silent Coup. Are you familiar with this book? I heard the title. Well, who is it by? It is by Matthew Kennard, which back when back when the Daily Bruin, when you were, he wrote an article when he. Yes, when, I know Matthew Kennard. He's wonderful. He's wonderful. And this is a new book that's exposing the that um, legal apparatus that's surrounding all the developing nations that kind of keeps them. Uh-huh. Keeps yeah, them. I, remember, it, it, I definitely remember his name. Yeah, he it's it's remarkable. I'm trying to I get think, I think he was a friend of mine at some of, point. Of he wrote a he when he was a student, and when you got in your hissy fit with uh Dershowitz, he went and did a study of the efficacy of your complaints against him. He was a student and he wrote this thing in favor of, and said you're absolutely right you know that that he was he was relying on the 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 footnotes of the book that had been debunked and i have you know, i don't have clear memories of it i'm sorry but well, okay nice 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 meeting you guys and best best of luck to both of you thank you mm -hmm.